Chapter 2, Four Key Principles Our first order of business is to address two questions that have the potential to derail this discussion. The issue is not that these questions expose weaknesses in sales process engineering. The issue is that these questions stand in the way of even being able to start our discussion. Considering the radical nature of the change we're contemplating, it's only natural to ask these questions. If the traditional sales model is so dysfunctional, and if there's a better method available, why haven't more companies adopted it already? And if the traditional model has withstood the test of time, how can it be that this model is fundamentally flawed? Why do we persist? There are two interrelated reasons we persist with the traditional approach to the design of the sales function. First, the traditional model conforms to all of our assumptions about how sales should be made. Second, it's impossible to inch one's way to the inside-out model. That requires a revolution. Deeply held assumptions. If we are to evaluate the traditional model with reference to enduring and deeply held assumptions about how to generate sales, the traditional approach to the design of the sales function measures up well. Ask yourself if you agree with the following statements. Number one, sales of expensive products and services are highly dependent upon personal relationships. Number two, a successful sales function is highly dependent upon star performers. Number three, Salespeople should be encouraged to operate autonomously, to view their territory almost as if it's their own business. Number four, sales is essentially an outside activity. Number five, customers require and benefit from a single point of contact with their suppliers. And number six, sales improvement is all about improving conversion, plugging the leaky funnel. Each of these statements sounds innocent enough, right? But for most salespeople and their managers, these statements are more than true. They are axioms. They are fundamental, self-evident, and unquestionable truths. Attempts to challenge them will be met with injured feelings or even hostility. Consequently, any approach to sales improvement that is in alignment with these axioms will feel right. But an approach that conflicts with one or more will almost certainly be dismissed out of hand. As you'll discover in due course, SPE conflicts with every one of these statements, and with numerous other commonly held beliefs about sales too. Sadly, the serious consideration of SPE tends to require at least one of the following conditions. The performance of the sales function must be so bad as to shake management's faith in the traditional model to its very core. Or senior executives with no prior exposure to sales perhaps an engineering or production specialist, must turn their attention to the sales function and refuse to adopt the existing orthodoxy. Almost without exception, our silent revolutionaries began their investigation of SPE only when both of these conditions were in place. Incremental change won't cut it. The other hurdle to the adoption of SPE is the magnitude of change required for the successful transition. Consider just a few of the changes that have to occur. A significant percentage of the activities associated with the acquisition and maintenance of accounts must be moved inside. Salespeople must willingly give up ownership of calendars, accounts, and even sales opportunities. Field salespeople must be prepared to spend all of their time in the field. In practice, this means a five to tenfold increase in territory size and, consequently, a lot more travel. 
management must be prepared to add new team members and possibly to see some existing team members exit the organization. Management must be prepared to assume and ultimately reassign the responsibility for the origination of sales opportunities. And then there's the impact on the rest of the organization. In pretty much every case, customer service needs to be re-engineered to cope with the additional load. Organizational functions must be tightly integrated with one another. New product development must work closely with marketing and engineering must march in lockstep with both sales and production. If production scheduling has devolved into brinkmanship to accommodate the demands of competing salespeople, scheduling must be fixed, and the master schedule must become sacrosanct. When you consider the counterintuitive nature of SPE and the significance of the transition from the traditional model, it's no wonder that the traditional model persists. But it can only persist for so long. How did we get here? The traditional sales model hasn't always been dysfunctional. For much of the history of industry, this model has been the optimal one. In fact, there are situations today in which the traditional model is still quite appropriate. What has happened is that industry itself has undergone two sea changes and sales has remained much the same. Sea change number one, from production focused to sales focused. In the 1989 film Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner's character plows under his corn and builds a baseball field in response to the promise that if you build it, he will come. Fortunately, shoeless Joe Jackson and friends arrive just in time to rescue the hapless farmer from bankruptcy. Today, the phrase build it and they will come is often used to reference the unrealistic expectation that production is sufficient to create a market. However, for much of the history of industry, production has in fact been sufficient. Until recently, the salesperson's job was to take a highly differentiated product and demonstrate it to potential customers. Sure, there was a requirement for some salesmanship, but for the most part, the sale was really made in new product development and production. Today, because the market is so much more competitive, it's unusual for a product to be highly differentiated. It's common for customers to choose product A over product B and reasonably expect to pay a similar price for a product that performs almost identically. It's true that we still have truly groundbreaking products, but these tend to be the exception rather than the rule. Because production has been the primary success driver for most of our recent history, this is where our capital and our brain power have been invested. And the return on this investment has been staggering. Over the last hundred years, we've seen massive increases in productivity, measured against any reasonable standard, and improvements of a similar magnitude in quality as well. We've seen at least three major revolutions in production. Frederick Winslow Taylor introduced scientific management at the start of the last century. Henry Ford's approach to mass production drove costs down to unprecedented levels. And in the 1950s, W. Edwards Deming jump-started the quality movement, contributing to the rise of Japan and subsequently revolutionizing operating procedures in production facilities the world over. Of course, the rate of change we've seen in production can't be sustained forever. Increasingly, managers are recognizing that their advances in production have exposed sales, including distribution, as the weak link. Today, sales is the new frontier. We're already seeing the focus of senior management shift to sales, and with focus comes capital and brain power. My prediction is that the next 50 years will bring revolutions in sales similar in scope and consequence to those that we've seen in production. 
Let this book be the first shot across the bow of the good ship orthodoxy. Sea change number two, from make to stock to engineer to order. As was previously mentioned, the fundamental assumption that sits at the base of the traditional sales model is that sales is the sole responsibility of an autonomous agent. If we consider how a typical organization has been structured for most of the history of industry, this assumption is a perfectly reasonable one. Consider a traditional value chain. The production facility produces to maintain a stockpile of inventory, and the salesperson sells from this inventory. In this environment, it makes perfect sense for the salesperson to operate autonomously. The firm as a whole benefits when its salespeople sell as much as possible. Because inventory is already sitting in a stockpile, orders can be fulfilled as soon as they are received. And because of this stockpile, minimal interaction is required between sales and production. Increasingly, though, this is not how value chains are configured. We have seen a recent and dramatic shift from make-to-stock to make-to-order environments. The latter reduces holding costs and provides customers with greater choice. In a make-to-order environment, it no longer makes sense for the salesperson to simply sell as much as possible. The salesperson needs to sell only what production has the capacity to produce. Rather than operating autonomously, the salesperson must subordinate to production. This is complicated by a further twist in the value chain. Today, an increasing number of products, as well as almost all services, are actually designed, or engineered, as they are being sold. In an engineer-to-order environment, tight integration between sales, engineering, and production is critical. The degree of integration determines both the likelihood of the sale being won and the quality of the product delivered. In such an environment, sales cannot possibly be the sole responsibility of an autonomous agent. In fact, for this reason, the traditional sales model damages both sales performance and product quality, and therefore, customer satisfaction. In summary, the traditional model always has, and perhaps always will make sense in a make-to-stock environment, where it's possible for the sales function to operate at arm's length from production. Such environments include most consumer goods, typically sold through retail, consumer and small business financial services, insurance and investment products, and packaged software. However, in make-to-order, and particularly in engineer-to-order environments, the requirement for tight integration between sales, engineering, and production renders the traditional model dangerously inappropriate. These environments include business services, consulting, legal, and finance, design and construct building, and enterprise software, for example. Now that we understand why sales environments look the way they do today, and why change is not necessarily an appealing proposition, let's return to the task at hand, redesigning the sales function. Direction of the solution. Let's consider how we might go about causing a dramatic increase in the productivity of the sales function. What might the direction of the solution be? We should immediately discount traditional sales improvement initiatives, for example, sales training or adjustments to the comp plan. History suggests that, at best, such initiatives produce only incremental improvements. For inspiration, we might look to manufacturing. This makes sense because we know that this is one part of the organization that has seen a dramatic increase in productivity in recent times. Do we know the cause of this dramatic change? As it happens, we do. 
In 1776, in his magnum opus, An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith predicted that division of labor would drive a massive increase in productivity. He told the story of a pin manufacturing operation in which 10 workers had divided the production procedure into 18 distinct steps and then distributed these steps among themselves. Individually, each worker could produce 20 pins a day. Collectively, they were producing 48,000. The benefits of the division of labor are not enjoyed only in manufacturing environments. If we take a stroll around a typical organization, we discover the division of labor in all types of production environments, in engineering, and even in finance. In fact, the only part of the organization that has not embraced the division of labor is sales. Assuming that there is no reason to immediately disqualify the division of labor, let's assume that this is the direction of our solution. Playing devil's advocate. But not so fast. If we were to commission an experienced salesperson to defend the traditional model, to be our devil's advocate, as it were, can we imagine their objections to the concept of division of labor? These are likely to be their two primary objections. Number one, complexity. Sales is complex in most environments today. You have multiple influences and decision makers. You have numerous conversations with multiple parties spanning weeks or months. This complexity does not lend itself to division of labor. Number two, personal relationships. People buy from people. No one likes to transact with a machine. The division of labor will destroy the critical personal relationship between the salesperson and the customer. Before I directly address these objections, it's interesting to observe that these are similar in nature to the objections you might hear from a craftsperson, an artisan, who's being encouraged to transition to a modern manufacturing environment. This person is likely to suggest that if they do not personally craft their product, any increases in efficiency will surely be offset by a reduction in quality. Of course, history suggests that the artisan's concerns are unwarranted. It just so happens that the changes we make to a production process in order to improve efficiency are the very same changes that are required to maximize quality. In case you're wondering, we improve efficiency in part by reducing variability within a production process. And as variability reduces, so does the defect rate. Complexity. Our devil's advocate is correct. A modern sales environment is certainly likely to be more complex for all the reasons stated. But is complexity a reason to avoid the division of labor? If it is, we should see a decline in the division of labor as we examine production environments of increasing complexity. Let's consider two extremes in a production context, the assembly of a hang glider and the assembly of a jet aircraft. The notion of a single person assembling even the simplest of jet aircraft is laughable. The fact is, in truly complex environments, the division of labor is not just possible, it's essential. Our devil's advocate has hinted at a potential problem in the application of the division of labor, one we'll grapple with in due course, but he has not dealt our proposed solution a lethal blow. Personal relationships. It's true that people enjoy, for the most part, interacting with other people. It's also true that many salespeople have good relationships with their customers. However, it's dangerous to assume, as salespeople frequently infer, that these relationships cause sales. 
To see why, we should inquire into the origin of a salesperson's relationships. Specifically, which comes first, the sale or the relationship? The reality is, for the most part, that the salesperson's relationships are the consequence of sales, not their first cause. Now, our devil's advocate is unlikely to take this line of reasoning lying down. His immediate objection will surely be that the distinction between first and proximate cause is purely academic, and that if relationships and sales are related, it matters little how they came to be that way. It's here that we must make a critical distinction, a distinction between the initial transaction in a series of transactions and the rest of those transactions. In most cases, the salesperson's initial transaction signals the acquisition of a new account, all the subsequent transactions, assuming the same product or service type, are repeat purchases. The first transaction, because it signals the acquisition of an annuity, is many times more valuable than any of the discrete subsequent ones. Because initial and subsequent transactions are materially different, it doesn't make sense to lump them together and refer to all of them as sales, as our devil's advocate is doing. So for the balance of this book, I will use the word sale to refer only to the acquisition of a new account or the sale of a new product or service line to an existing one. I will refer to repeat transactions as just transactions. We must consider now the contribution that the salesperson's relationship makes to the retention of existing accounts. There's no question that this relationship must factor into the retention equation, but what are the other considerations? As we'll discuss in much more detail, Every organization must have three core functions to be viable in the long run. New product development, sales, and production. It's revealing to rank these three functions in the order in which we believe they will affect account retention. Although salespeople all over the world are allocated responsibility for retention, it's extraordinarily rare to find a salesperson who will identify sales as the primary driver of retention. Almost without exception, salespeople recognize that production performance is the primary influence. In other words, the number one thing an organization must do to retain its customers is to deliver on time, in full, without errors. Salespeople will also willingly volunteer that the number two thing that an organization must do is ensure that its products are consistently better than and cheaper than its competitors which, of course, is the responsibility of new product development. The shocking reality is that salespeople contribute little to retention relative to production and new product development, even though retention is their responsibility. If you are deficient in the areas of production or new product development, it may be that your salespeople's personal relationships cause accounts to persist with your organization a little longer than they otherwise would. However, to claim that personal relationships cause sales amounts to either equivocation or outright denial, or perhaps a little of each. Putting the division of labor to work, four key principles. With those objections out of the way, we've bought ourselves a little bit of time to piece together our solution. The division of labor is not the solution, after all, just the direction of the solution. Our devil's advocate intuitively recognized this when he raised the objection about complexity. The thing is, when we apply the division of labor to any environment, the situation tends to get a lot worse before it gets better. The rewards offered by the successful transition from the craft shop to the division of labor are exciting, as was reported by Adam Smith all those years ago. 
but the transition itself is difficult and extraordinarily perilous. The fact that production has been the primary focus of industry for the last hundred years is evidence of the difficulty of the transition. The good news is that if we intend to lead our sales function down the path already taken by production, this is indeed a well-trodden path. The lessons from manufacturing can be generalized into four fundamental principles. Number one, scheduling should be centralized. Number two, workflows should be standardized. Number three, resources should be specialized. And number four, management should be formalized. We'll dedicate the balance of this chapter to the exploration of these principles in their natural manufacturing context. And in the next chapter, we'll figure out how to repurpose these principles for the sales environment. First, however, we need to be sure that we understand the nature of the problem we're attempting to solve. To achieve that, we'll turn our attention to a boat race. The primary challenge. In fact, let's consider two boat races, both of them time trials. In each case, the oarsmen will attempt to maximize the speed of their vessels. In the first race, the oarsmen's times will be average to determine the result. In the first race, each oarsman commandeers his own boat, each as an autonomous agent. When the starter's gun fires, each oarsman must do his level best to maximize the speed of his vessel, and he does that, not surprisingly, by rowing as fast as is humanly possible. This race is an allegory for the craft shop environment in manufacturing and for the traditional sales model. In the second race, we make one subtle change. We put all the oarsmen in the one boat. The goal is the same, to reach the finish line in the shortest amount of time. But each of the oarsmen must undergo a radical shift in his approach to the goal. If each oarsman rows as fast as possible, the speed of the vessel will definitely not be maximized. If each oarsman maximizes his individual rate of work, the consequences will be a lot of noise, clashing of oars, and possibly a capsized boat. In this second race, an example of course of the division of labor, the speed of the vessel is determined primarily by the synchronization of the oarsmen, not by their individual rates of work. Now, the shift of focus from individual effort to synchronization may not seem significant, but it is. Particularly when we consider environments more complex than a rowboat. Learning to row in unison with others is tricky, but this skill, in this context, is made easier by the fact that you're operating in close proximity to your colleagues. You stroke in time with the person in front of you, and the fact that you have immediate feedback. You can see and feel the impact of your actions on the performance of the vessel. This tends not to be the case in a typical work environment. Few people today work in rowboats. In a reasonable sized manufacturing plant, for example, it's unlikely that all of the workers contributing to a process are in visual contact with one another. And in a knowledge work environment, such as, say, a sales function, work in progress is invisible and lead times are long, meaning that there's no immediate feedback. In such an environment, how do workers synchronize their rates of work? The short answer is that without special intervention, they simply don't. Here's an interesting thought experiment. Consider the changes we would need to make to our rowboat model in order for this model to be representative of a standard knowledge work environment. How about we replace each of the oarsmen with a rowing machine, a powerful solenoid operated by remote control? And let's put each of our oarsmen in a cubicle in an office complex and equip each with a remote control unit. 
On each remote control unit is a button that actuates the solenoid back in the boat and causes that oarsman's two oars to stroke. If each oarsman is isolated from the boat and from his colleagues, and he is committed to winning the race, how will he determine when to press the button? Sadly, this scenario is not dissimilar to many modern work environments. To complete this picture, all we need to do is add a manager who attempts to improve the performance of the boat by running from cubicle to cubicle, encouraging everyone to row harder, and then who periodically berates team members for their lack of communication. Principle number one, scheduling should be centralized. To claim that the division of labor causes workers to become disconnected from the performance of their overall system is stating the obvious. After all, as we'll soon discuss, a narrowing of the worker's focus is both a benefit and a necessary condition for the division of labor. It's inevitable, then, that the division of labor will result in synchronization problems. The solution is to centralize scheduling. Any work you perform can be broken into two components. The first of these are the critical activities that cause matter or information to change form. The second component is what I'll be referring to as scheduling. Of course, scheduling is pretty easy when it's just you doing the work. You can learn the basics in a half-day time management workshop. However, as you add more workers to the work environment, scheduling will rapidly become more complex. The key to avoiding synchronization problems when we apply the division of labor is to first split the responsibility for these two components of work. If we fail to do this, the local efficiency improvements that result from workers focusing on a single task will quickly be eaten up by the general chaos that spreads through the environment, like those clashing oars in our rowboat. There are many environments in which the centralization of scheduling is a well-established practice. The manufacturing plant, in which scheduling is the responsibility of a master scheduler. The project environment, in which the project manager owns a schedule. The orchestra. In a string quartet, the first violin sets the tempo, while in the case of a full orchestra, a dedicated conductor is required. And the airport. Consider the chaos if, in the absence of an air traffic controller, pilots had to decide among themselves when to take off and land. In each of these cases, scheduling is a specialty. The project manager doesn't wear a tool belt, and an air traffic controller can be quite capable even if they have never flown a plane. Now, it's true that even the most complex sales environments are less complex than a busy airport. But it's also true that almost every sales environment is significantly more complex than a rowboat. Therefore, if we're entertaining the idea of applying division of labor to sales, we must first acknowledge that the very first activity for which the salesperson relinquishes responsibility will be scheduling. Postscript. Until now, we've accepted that in a simple environment like a rowboat, the division of labor doesn't require the centralization of scheduling. Second, the coxswain maximizes the speed of the boat by causing all of the oarsmen to row at the same speed as the slowest oarsmen. Therefore, to maximize the speed of the boat, all but one of the oarsmen must row slower than their maximum capability. Principle two. Workflows should be standardized. The need to standardize all workflows is regarded as self-evident by many managers. Note the attention paid to standard operating procedures in the modern workplace. But it's worth acknowledging that standardization is only a necessity in an environment in which the division of labor has been applied. Interestingly, you can see evidence of this if you look at CRM, implementations in sales environments. 
Almost every mid to large sized organization has invested tens or more commonly hundreds of thousands of dollars in this technology in recent years in anticipation of increased sales performance. Few, however, can point to any performance improvements that can be attributed to the CRM. If you examine business cases for typical CRM implementations, you'll discover that many promises hinge on an assumption that the standardizations of salespeople's procedures will cause an increase in sales. Absent the division of labor, this is not a surety. Capable salespeople neither need nor benefit from the standardization of their operating procedures. Consequently, the CRM adds overhead, the additional data entry required to comply with standards without generating any performance uplift. But the division of labor changes things. Standardization suddenly becomes critical. When the person who plans the work, the scheduler, is remote from the people who do the work, the standardization of procedures and workflows prevents the complexity of environments from multiplying to unmanageable levels. In manufacturing environments, the workflow is referred to as the routing. The routing is the path that work will follow through the plant, taking into account both the activities that will be performed and the resources that will perform them. The general rule in manufacturing is that for production of the same product, the same routing should be followed. If we apply the division of labor to the sales environment, we must standardize our workflows for the same reason. For this environment to be manageable and scalable, all opportunities of the same type, in other words, the same objective, must be prosecuted using the same routing, from the origination of those opportunities through their management. Principle number three, resources should be specialized. In discussing the centralization of scheduling, we've already broached the subject of specialization. We know that when we apply the division of labor, the scheduler is the very first specialist. Indeed, once we have centralized scheduling and standardized workflows, specialization is relatively easy. Specialization causes a significant increase in workers' productivity for two reasons. First, when a worker performs activities of just one type, they become very good at performing those activities. Second, switching between materially different activities imposes a significant overhead on a worker. The elimination of this switching, or multitasking, increases that worker's effective capacity. Of course, specialization doesn't just relate to people. In most environments today, activities will be shared between people and machines, including computers. However, we should note that automation has not been the root cause of productivity improvements in the last hundred years. The primary cause is the division of labor. After all, it's the division of labor that has allowed us to simplify activities to the point at which some can be performed by machines. When it comes to dividing activities, it tends to make sense to make the division along three axes. Number one, location. You should split field and inside activities, meaning that people work inside or outside, but never a mix. Number two, work type. You should split activities that are different enough to impose a switching cost. For example, creative activities do not mix well with transactional ones. Number three, cadence. You should split long and short lead time activities. For example, in a technology environment, you should not mix true development work with break-fix tasks. Principle number four, management should be formalized. It's interesting to note that the very first manager was a scheduler, as per our Coxon example. 
However, as environments grow, so do the responsibilities of management. Today, it's more likely that the manager of a function delegates scheduling to a technical specialist and focuses on the internal performance of their function, as well as its integration with the rest of the organization. This broader focus makes sense for two reasons. The division of labor causes work environments to become inherently fragile. And because the organization consists of a number of functions, each of which could be characterized as an oarsman in a larger boat, someone must pay attention to the synchronization of the organization as a whole. Specialization is a two-edged sword. It causes a dramatic increase in the productivity of each individual, but it also causes each worker to operate in a vacuum, intently focused on their own work in process, their task list. To a great extent, the scheduler compensates for this narrow focus. But the manager is still required to ensure compliance with the schedule, to resolve problems as they occur, and to make decisions relating to the design and resourcing of the overall environment. Now, the word formalize in this fourth principle may seem redundant. After all, in our production environment, there was no need for management prior to the division of labor. Why then do we need to formalize management as opposed to simply adding a manager? Well, this is one area in which the sales environment differs from our production example. The modern sales function has grown large enough that there is a requirement for a manager to attend to those second-order management responsibilities. This means that most sales functions have managers, in spite of the fact that they are still essentially craft shop environments. These managers, however, have no understanding of scheduling and no experience managing the kind of environment that will exist after the transition to the division of labor. Accordingly, we will definitely need to convince our sales managers to adopt a more formal approach to management.